1: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are very, very excited today. Alex, who have we got? This is brilliant. So mary Lund with us. She's an Associate Professor in Renaissance English Literature at the University of Leicester. So she's a historian and a published author. Her most recent book is Melancholy, Medicine and Religion in Early Modern England. So essentially, I guess what we're going to talk about today is Renaissance mental health to a certain extent. Is that right? It is, absolutely. Hello, Alex. Hello, Alina. Okay. Lovely to see you. Uh, So how did you get into this subject?
2: Goodness me. Well, a a long time ago when I was doing my my doctorate, um, it it was on Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, um, a book that I'd become a little bit obsessed about uh, when I was doing my master's. Um, It's an absolutely whopping book. It's a a real doorstop uh, of a read. And I never come up against a, a book that was so indefinable. In lots of mm. ways. It's you know, it's a literary text and I'm principally a literary scholar. Um but uh but it's about medicine, obviously. Um it's historical, it's got religious things, it's got a lot of jokes in it and philosophy, so it's a real mix. And I, I got interested in the idea about how mental health was regarded and treated um in a time when there weren't psychologists, psychiatrists, um people who had a specialism in that particular kind of thing. So they, they approached it very much through thinking about body, mind and soul could you define melancholy for us that's a good idea that's where we start yeah (laughs) well melancholy literally i mean means black bile and it's from from the greek um and it's from the concept of the four humors so we think back to to galen and and before that to hippocrates um the idea that our body has bodies have these four fluid substances we've got blood cholera um, melancholy or black bile and, and last of all phlegm and in healthy people they're in this this ideal balance that that keeps us alive and, and makes us kind of moderate um, and healthy but if one of them gets out of whack you get more of, of one humor than the other then uh, that can affect your physical health but also your mental health so melancholy itself as a disease um, is uh, it, it's a kind of a mental illness, dotage, uh, Robert Burton calls it in the anatomy of melancholy. Uh, it's not a feverish thing, so it's not about you becoming frenzied, but it's accompanied for most kind by sorrow and fear. So so you can feel sad, but you also can feel frightened. Um the nearest modern equivalent would be sort of depression and anxiety, but you can't make direct connections, I think, between melancholy and, and our present categorization of mental illnesses, because we tend to give lots more words to something that, that back then was had this kind of one catch-all term if you like melancholy. Um, so it's, it's very much physically rooted in lots of ways but it, it's also a, a disease that had many different permutations to it.
1: So is it Democritus or Democritus Junior? Who was he and how does he fit into the narrative? Okay, so when Robert Burton wrote The Anatomy of Melancholy,
2: which came out first in 1621, 400 years ago, um, he published it not under his own name. He published it under the name of Democritus Junior. And in doing that, he was saying that he was heir of an ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, Democritus was the laughing philosopher uh, who was kind of the pair of Heraclitus, the, the weeping philosopher. And the idea behind that was that uh, he, he said Democritus looked at at the world and all its madness and its follies, and his response is to laugh at it. So it's kind of satirical in some ways, whereas Heraclitus cried and you know and, and mourned its follies. In fact, Burton by taking on that kind of mantle. He he actually says that really a mixed passion is what you need as a response to uh, to the world. So what you're seeing here is, on the one hand, we're talking about a, a mental disease that affects individuals. He's also making a claim that melancholy is something that affects the whole world. Um so that Democritus role is one that he takes on. He, he gets it from Erasmus, the great uh, 16th century humanist, scholar, mm. philosopher, uh, author, playful individual. Um, because in in Erasmus's Praise of Folly, Folly, the character of, of Folly herself says that um, we need a thousand Democrituses to to kind of mock and laugh at the world's folly because there is so much of it, and even then we'd always need one more. Uh, so when Burton wrote the Anatomy of Melancholy, he said, I, "I'm one of these. I'm I'm uh, the Democritus Junior." But there's also another, more particular thing about um, mental illness with Democritus, and Burton tells us a story about that. He says that um, when you take this from, from the kind of Hippocratic letters, that the people of Abdera were concerned about their sort of local friendly uh, philosopher, Democritus, had himself gone mad. Uh, so they sent Hippocrates along to go and, and see him and, and have a chat with him. And Hippocrates finds Democritus sitting in a garden, cutting up dead animals. and Like you do. Like <laughs> you do yes <laughs> it's a bit of pleasure and he says uh what are you doing and Democritus says I'm looking for the source of the world's madness of what's wrong with everybody because look at the world everyone's obsessed with getting what their neighbors have everyone's envious everyone's complaining about things um and I'm trying to trying to work out well where, where it is and I can't cut up humans to do that so I'm going to cut up animals instead and and work out from them where where it might be in us humans is it in a particular organ so he and Burton has him then he tells retells that story and says I'm like Democritus looking for the world's madness and, and also trying to understand melancholy um Hippocrates afterwards he goes back to the people of Abdur and says your philosopher Democritus is not mad at all he's the wise one You've mentioned this already. Some of the causes, uh, some of the causes. Sorry, of melancholy, but can you go into a little bit more detail about them for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, sorrow and fear are the the big ones for melancholy. They're the, the major sources and kind of accompaniments, if you like. The other really important thing about them is is Burton defines melancholy as sorrow and fear without a cause. So. It's not necessarily linked to something proportionate that makes you melancholy. It could be something really quite small, a little little trigger. Um, There's an extraordinary story in one of the medical textbooks of a preacher in the Netherlands and he's walking through the fields and he gets suddenly gets overcome with an attack of diarrhoea. So he runs for the, for a ditch, jumps down at the ditch to <laughs> pull down his trousers, uh, to relieve himself. And then one of his, his female parishioners comes past and sees him, catches him in the act. And according to this medical story, then they're so horrified, he's so horrified by the shame and the embarrassment of being seen having a liquid poo in a ditch <laughs> that he takes to his bed and is overcome with melancholy for months on end. So it doesn't need to be anything, you know, majorly significant. Nonetheless, it can be. I mean, it can be some, some really quite natural disaster. Uh, there are stories of people who, um, for instance, got caught up in the, there was a big earthquake in Bologna in 1504. And, um, that one of the, the stories is of somebody who, who not only is, is overcome with the fumes and the horrible event itself, but then he can't get past it, um, and eventually takes his own life. So so melancholy it is really interesting because they, they see it in this one name for something that can be all kinds of different permutations um, and all kinds of causes. Um, ultimately, I mean, it can even come from your, your parents, just from the way you're born and, and your kind of your humoral makeup. Or it could be the fact that you're very old, that you've become all melancholy. Um, more or less, you know, as many as there are different people in the world, there are different causes and, and varieties of melancholy.
1: What's interesting about that then is they already understand that it's the things that happen to you that affect how you are, how you're, like, they wouldn't have referred to it obviously as how your mental health is, but that's, they're acknowledging that things happen to people and it affects them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um And that things that are, are way beyond your control. Yeah, I mean, Yeah. I, I find it very interesting, for instance, that that they they kind of register the fact that I mean perhaps what we might call a kind of the, the the chemical balances of the brain. It's very different understanding, of course, um, in the ancient times and through to the Renaissance. But but that understanding that there are some things you can't change about yourselves uh, and and which really affect you. Um, but I should say on the other side that Burton says, well, actually, you can moderate your behavior so there is this emphasis i think in, in renaissance texts and also you do have some responsibility um for, you, for yourself and which might be able to kind of do a bit of, of rebalancing but it, it's not going to sort of sort everything out sometimes
1: which of the causes interested you the most when you were writing your book Um, I
2: mean, the the book that I've that's coming out uh, early next year is a user's guide to melancholy. Mm. Um, And it's a kind of more more popular uh, version of some of the the work I've done on on melancholy and the anatomy of melancholy. And I start each chapter by talking about a case study about an individual uh, story. And I think I must admit that rather than a particular cause, it was it's the stories that I found quite kind of captivating. Um, There's one Extraordinary story of uh, there was a Swiss gentlewoman in, in Basel, who um, she she's out in the streets of the town and sees a pig being butchered, and as the butcher cuts open the pig and the entrails of the pig pour out, she looks, you know, disgusted at it, and this doctor who's standing next to her who who has you know, clearly uh, has had a tacked bypass says, "See that pig." You look, you're like that pig inside, lady, and she promptly vomits all over the place and goes home, and then takes to her bed, and again, it, she's um, for months upon end, she is trapped in in melancholy, and the Swiss physician Felix Platter, who wrote lots of uh, case studies, kind of really struggled to treat this woman, and I think it's that sometimes there's stories like that that where the cause is is something that you could kind of get it, you you can understand why that would be a really horrible moment but then that understand that in a few cases becomes something that's really long term it, it becomes a really chronic condition um and where a kind of m- moment of, of basically it's social cruelty isn't it that, that the unpleasantness and, and sort of misogyny really as well in that story that, that then affects her disproportionately they're very relatable aren't they mm yeah absolutely um i i i think that is those stories about uh being around and about in the world the life of towns perhaps where where your neighbors are kind of watching you and you have your social position to consider or or the the way people are talking about you melancholy is often about that it's it's about that sense of what other people think of you and then what you think they're thinking Um, is behind a lot of those stories and people that become really, really trapped by that and, and become seriously ill.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: So we've talked about the causes. What symptoms could a person have? A wide range of things. Um, Sometimes it, it can often be uh, that melancholy uh, exhibits itself not in everything that you do and say and are but in in, just in very particular things so nobody would necessarily notice that you're a melancholy except if they they saw this one particular aspect of you So there's an interesting idea actually the the sort of invisible illness and invisible disability that we talk about today um it, it could be that you are seeking out solitude Um, or that you don't want to go out so much don't want to socialize and that's that's often actually cause and symptom uh, that that it becomes rather a self-propagating thing Um, it could be that you have a particular phobia something that that really alarms and scares you um you could one of the, the the varieties of melancholy is to do with delusion as well so that you um become convinced of something where in every other respect you might seem quite you know normal in quotation marks but you have this one sort of idea fix so there are melancholics who think they're made of glass for instance um and the stories go in every other respect they seem normal, except that they are terrified of people coming near them um because they will break I think that's a particularly interesting thing to think about in, in uh, a time of social distancing and pandemic. Um, people who have who are scared of physical contact or of, of others coming too close to them or they're scared of their body's fragility. Uh, likewise, there's a, a story of uh, somebody who w- was ill with a, a physical disease for a very long time and his doctors cured him of the disease. But they gave him a particular strong smelling medicine. And after that, he became really phobic of this smell, uh, this particular smell of the, this medicine. But also once he was he was well cured of the physical illness, he thought he could smell it everywhere um, and be, so kept away from everyone, too. Uh, so that those kind of stories are, are intriguing ones. Um, also, you know, people who thought that they were a shellfish or a cockerel or that they were made of butter or that they were a pot that they uh, had to hold the whole world up like Atlas, literally weighed down by the cares of the world. Um, All kinds of weird and wonderful stories that are
1: behind melancholy. I I love the How traumatic must it have been if you genuinely thought you were made of butter? Yes,
2: absolutely. Especially as the man who, who thought he was made of butter, he was a baker. Uh, in the italian city of ferrara and so he was convinced he was made of butter and that every time he got too near the fires yeah uh, where you know he's he's baking his bread that he would melt or if he went out in the sunshine so it's a phobia that's uh, and a delusion that's connected to his whole occupation and his means of making money
1: so, yeah. so how do renaissance people cure this what so they obviously don't have fluoxetine or citalopram so what did they how did they approach this problem
2: i think one of the things that's really interesting about melancholy is they see the whole person in lots of ways Um, and i don't want to kind of over modernize uh past ways of treatment because there's some stuff that we find really objectionable but they they thought about the treating the body and the mind together and actually that, that kind of considering All the aspects of your life. So one aspect would be diet, for instance. Are you eating the right things? There are lots of foods, for instance, that were seen to increase melancholy, like heavy meats, for instance. Hair was a a particularly bad thing to eat if you're a melancholic, and likewise, kind of things that would be rough on the digestion. So that that would be one thing to treat and to get you kind of moderate. Don't drink dark beer. Drink white wine, for uh, for instance, would be one thing. um It might be. I mean that the there wasn't a kind of counselling thing, but they they saw the the benefit of spiritual um, treatment and and of kind of talking over uh, things that troubled you, and um, talking to a friend as well. Um, so a sense that the melancholic might be helped not just by a physician, but by all the people around them, your family members, your friends might might help you uh, gently towards a cure. There were certainly some. I mean, there were uh medicines as well things that were prescribed um hellebore which is the plant flowering plant was recognized since ancient Greece as something that uh within moderation was good for treating the mind and some other herbs as well borage bugloss things like that um physicians differ about them and some treatments get very complex and they, they become kind of um rather um uh, an arguments and Debates about whether they were actually good for you or not, um, but they had that kind of, I suppose, a slightly global view of, of how you might be treated. Uh, that were taking patterns of behaviour, opening your window. Kind of, you know, did you live in somewhere that was really cold and damp and marshy? Well, um, perhaps you needed to move if that was the case. Uh, that only works if you're <laughs> wealthy, of course, and can afford it. But. What's the strangest cure you've come across? Oh. That's a good question. I, I mean, I think that the strangest that, that Robert mentions are the ones that involve delusion and treating delusion. So there is a story of a, a, a gentleman in Siena who um, became convinced that if he went to the loo, if he urinated, that he would flood his whole town. He, he thought that his bladder was so full that uh, and enormous that he would just wee everywhere and everybody would drown um and the way that they treated it was actually by sort of entering that story um and kind of saying okay well that's going to happen um, and they the doctors went and got the the bells in the town to be rung um which is the kind of fire alarm system of uh of renaissance siena and they got people they got someone to light a fire in the house next door so that there'll be wafty smoke and they got the servants and other people to run around going fire fire and they ran up to this chap's bedchamber and said you're the only one that can save us please go to the toilet now and then you could put our fire out and then he did he relieved his bladder and the moment he did his melancholy delusion was cured and he realized that this was it was not the case at all his bladder was not infinitely large um and there were there are lots of stories like that of, of renaissance melancholy um people who thought they were dead and they the, the doctor gets his assistant to dress up as a corpse and then have some food because the patient won't eat and say oh look you know of course the dead can eat i'm dead and i'm eating um and so so they enter the reality of the melancholic and then work with them and they, these stories get retold because they were seen as you know amusing and strange and weird and wonderful but i think there's also that really interesting sense of, of, of compassion for for the sufferer in that they're not going to be cured by persuasion necessarily so you have to kind of work with the person
1: can i chuck an extra question in here because we started to touch on something that really interests me Come um, a lot more acceptable now to have a mental health issue and people we're starting to adjust and improve our responses to people who are suffering from mental health issues how do people respond to melancholy in the period that you look at it's a really interesting question um i mean in
2: some ways melancholy had some fashion to it and the anatomy of melancholy was published in six editions and it really made burton it's the only thing he worked on um more or less and and so i think that book succeeded and became perennially popular because of this interest in in mental health and the way that the mind can work on the body Um, but you often get in in doctor's records um, notes about melancholy in, in you know one version or another i don't think there's a sense of of a stigma um, mm. to melancholy at all in fact rather the other way I mean think about those 16th century portraits of of gentlemen where it becomes the kind of emo goth thing you know they're the dressed in black black is the color of melancholy mm. and, and rather styling themselves as that so it it's interesting because on the one hand there is the almost fashionable posturing as melancholy um in in the renaissance um that because you are you know, lonely and mysterious, but you also have got that touch of genius about mm. you. Melancholy has that link with genius.
1: Kind of like we've had Carolyn Dayon talking about um, these nutty women in the 18th century who wanted to look like they were dying of TB. Yeah. Mm. yeah Similar yeah. thing, isn't it? Isn't it odd the way things become fashionable?
2: Yeah, but yeah. I think more, it, this is a, a kind of male version of yeah. that. Um, um, you get people i am thinking of Margaret Cavendish you know the great 17th century um, poet aristocrat poet and she styles herself as melancholy too but what's actually really interesting is that in the anatomy of melancholy Robert Burton um, he says yeah that there is that part of it of, of the self-styled melancholic but it's also serious this is this is not something to be trifled with in fact he says that there are people who who start kind of you know being a bit lonely being not doing anything and then actually that's the tipping point they get sucked into the irrevocable gulf and then it becomes really dangerous you can't get yourself out so I think Burton and and his contemporaries they had no doubt that this was something that could be very serious and and indeed lifelong Um, he claimed himself to be suffering from it so I think he he had that sense of the, the sufferer speaking out so do you think his book made any sort of difference to the way we look at it now yeah, in lots of ways. I mean, from from a literary sense, loads of people read it and found it interesting. They read it for the stories. So Burton was a great collector of things and, and a masser of little quotations and stories and all that kind of thing. And so from in a literary sense, you see that legacy. Uh, Lawrence Stern rips a bits off the interest from Shandy. John um, Keats was interested in it. It appears in there's a quotation from the Anatomy of Melancholy in Middle March, um, and on and on. Anthony Burgess right into the present day um, that literary sense of melancholy. Um, I mean, clearly in the in the long history of how to treat mental health, things change significantly, and it's to do with the professionalisation of medicine um, in. The early 17th century, when Burton was around, there was a whole range of practitioners, including the kind of licensed physicians, but also unlicensed folk, lay people, healers, um, people like him. I mean, he, he wasn't a physician; he was an Oxford college fellow and a priest, uh, but he saw himself as kind of treating. Uh, melancholy, that was a, dis- a condition of the soul as well. So I think actually, if you look at the, the long history of mental health and illness, you, it, it becomes much more kind of clinical, um, and, at the, and, and professionalized with psychology as a, as a discipline itself. I think sometimes that there is certainly that, that sense of, of burden and, and melancholy casting a very long shadow, um, and I think actually sometimes when people look at past um, treatments and attitudes to to mental health, we've got something interesting to learn from them too about the the way that uh, in it, from a social perspective, um, mental health conditions might be perceived, but also kind of ways of treating it. Um, that it, it's not just about a kind of a medical treatment, although that's a very important part of it, but also um, different kinds of things. I, reading books for instance Burton himself sets up this idea that the, that the anatomy of melancholy is about trying to cure it and curing through reading it um, keeping you entertained and occupied
1: What kind of so we are source nerds on this program what kind of sources did you use to create such a detailed book
2: well when I was writing the user's guide to uh, melancholy it was very much in uh, in, in tribute and, and affection towards the anatomy of melancholy itself um because it's burton's 400th anniversary of, of the anatomy uh-huh. of melancholy and because could be described as a book of books um he was a scholar who was reading very widely from the whole range of of medical history from the ancient times to his present day so i that was obviously my principal source but i was going back to some of his own sources too and comparing sometimes what he does with them so other uh, renaissance physicians um medics writing in latin or in the vernacular um, there was a french physician and an english um people writing about melancholy too um he's also uses literary sources and philosophy I and mean, he uses people like petrarch for instance and some of the, the stories that um come from there and you know med- medical um case books i think formed a large part of it um there are the the medical textbooks that are about disease at a general level, causes, symptoms, cures. But there also there were collections of case histories, simply in that kind of Hippocratic um, medicine, which was about, I treated so and so and this is how this is what happened. This is what their symptoms were and this is how I uh, treated them. Uh, and then physicians would collect them together um so that you could have could learn something about disease through all of the individual instances uh, so I, I did a kind of mix of that really following a burden's footsteps
1: tell everybody is the book out now
2: yeah user's guide to melancholy comes out in february 2021 through cambridge university press um yeah it it was an absolute joy to write. I must admit, I, I, I loved coming back to Burton, having done my doctorate on him quite a while ago, but also digging into those stories. I think the human stories about individuals um, and you know past sufferings, and, uh, I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of connect with and, and uncover. And it was something that Burton was very interested in. And I think also it's why we find Burton so interesting too.
1: You just thought that we could perhaps learn something from how people in the renaissance responded to mental health as well absolutely yeah yeah
2: um and I, I think I, I have found when i talk about burton and some of these stories that often people will open up about things that have happened to them um by comparison and see those parallels i'm always cautious about making them myself because that's that's not my task as a historian i think i, I like to leave those things open for other people to, to make the connection with their own lives especially when you're dealing with a subject like mental health i think you should be you know, very very careful about that if you're working on it um from a historical perspective and not kind of imposing our own standards and preconceptions when you're looking at, at past ideas about how mind and body worked but also of course from from our own perspective um i think it it's interesting for, for modern readers to, to make their own links, if you like. Marianne, oh, yeah, I want to thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking to us about melancholy. It was absolutely fascinating getting an insight into uh, what uh, people in the Renaissance
1: period thought about mental health. So, thank you so much. A great pleasure. Thank you, Alina. Thank you, Alex. Join us tomorrow morning for Pole Position, Alina's monthly jaunt into Polish history. This time looks at the Piast dynasty with Darius von Gutner, so don't miss that one. And then in the afternoon, Beth Moore will be banging her drum for the Midlands. She'll be talking all about the early engagements of the 46th Division in World War One. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon. there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,